All right, biohackers, who doesn't love a yummy, creamy whey protein shake? Oh, it is such a treat. And I really love it as a meal replacement, post-workout recovery, maybe even a midday snack. So this is why I have to tell you about Puri Protein Powder. I absolutely love the bourbon vanilla flavor and the chocolate, but I think I got to go with the, the vanilla as my favorite. So it's smooth, it's delicious. And you know what else? It's pretty awesome that the flavors come from real natural ingredients like the bourbon vanilla seeds from Madagascar. And let's talk about quality because there's a lot of junk whey protein on the market that I would not recommend. So the Puree whey protein, it comes from pasture-raised cow's milk with no hormones, no GMOs, and no pesticides. This is because Puree's mission has always been to be the best at offering pure, clean, and superior products that, that support health and well-being. And what I think truly sets them apart is that they are fully transparent with their product testing. Every batch is third-party tested against more than 200 contaminants and certified clean by the Clean Label Projects. Not all brands can say this. Plus, each product contains a QR code so you can personally scan it and review the test results at home. I know you're excited to try it out. So what you're going to do is head on over to puri.com slash biohackerbabes. That's P-U-O-R-I.com slash biohackerbabes. And then make sure you use promo code biohackerbabes at checkout to save 20%. All right, let's get back to the show. We're digging deep and asking the questions we need to ask. Years of stress and not just emotional. I was depleting my body. I was malnourished. I'm working out like crazy. I'm eating all these healthy foods. How could I not be well? We have to get back to the basics. We can change the way our genes are expressed. Anyone that wants to improve their health or upgrade their health, they should be biohacking. My name is Renee. And I'm Lauren. We are the Biohacker Babes. We're sisters and we're joining forces to empower you to become your own biohacker and upgrade your life. The Biohacker Babes podcast aims to create insight into the body's natural healing abilities, strengthen your intuition, and empower you with techniques and modalities to optimize your health and wellness. Because life is too short to not feel your best every single day. This podcast offers health, fitness, and nutritional information and is designed for educational purposes only. You should not rely on this information as a substitute for, nor does it replace professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. If you have any concerns or questions about your health, you should always consult with a physician or other healthcare professional. Thank you for joining us and welcome to the show. Welcome to the Biohacker Babes podcast. I'm Renee and I'm here with my sister, Lauren, and we have a special guest for you today. And this is the first time we have a guest back on for a second time. So she is officially our... Uh, most popular guest, I would say. So we have Dr. Casey Means. She is back. Um, we had her on for episode number 58. So if you have not listened to that, definitely go back and check it out because we really got a lot of great information that's going to set us up for today's episode. And we got so much great feedback, so many questions and responses on social media that we're like, okay, Dr. Casey, we got to get you back on here immediately. So welcome back to the show. We're so excited. Oh, thank you so much, Renee and Lauren. I'm so excited to be back. Wonderful. Yeah, it seems like this topic is really exploding. I mean, we got so many inquiries from our audience, but also just selfishly, I have so many more questions for you. And both right, Renee and I are just so fascinated with glucose and reactions and how it affects our health right now. So uh, I don't know, maybe we'll have you back five more times because I don't oh. foresee this conversation <laughs> wrapping up anytime soon. But yeah, we're going to yeah. use this as sort of a Q&A just to dig a little bit deeper on some things that we didn't quite get to in the last episode and hopefully answer everyone's questions that were sent in and also our own. Yeah. Perfect. I can't and wait to dive in. Yeah. And stay tuned for the end. We have a nice surprise coming for you. Um, if you want to get your hands on a CGM, I know we got a lot of questions about that. So we will give you more information at the end of the episode. Yeah. Okay. To kick right. this off, Dr. Casey, I have kind of a general question, but last time we talked about 
trying to achieve like the nice rolling hills with our glucose trends. That's the ideal snapshot that we want if we're using this continuous glucose monitor. We don't want anything that's spiking too high. We definitely, if we are getting a little bit of a hill, we want it to come back down. Can you explain the mechanism or, or what's happening in our body or some reasons why we may get a spike that's a little too high or a dip that's a little bit too low? Yeah, absolutely. So I guess just going back to um, some of the stuff we talked about in our first episode, but if people hasn't, haven't listened, you know, going back to sort of like the spikes first rolling hills. So when you, you know, consume food, you're going to have some natural, probably small amount of, even if there's low carbohydrates in the meal, you're, you're going to have some glucose release into your bloodstream and you might see a little bit of an elevation with your glucose and a little bit up and a little bit down, you know, is generally what's optimal for health. We don't want these sharp peaks and valleys, um, that can be problematic to health for a number of reasons. And really the, there's, there's five main reasons we'll run through pretty fast, but one is that high glucose spikes can cause inflammation. It can tell the body that, you know, it's, it's just not normal to have a super, super high spike. So it it can kind of tell the body like we're on threat mode, like what's going on and can cause some uh, inflammation and inflammatory cytokine release. Uh, The second thing is it can cause oxidative stress. So that's, you know, free radical exposure in the body and those can be damaging to our tissues. Uh, And the third is it can cause glycation, which is where basically just sugar molecules, if they're in high concentration in the bloodstream, they can stick to things and they can stick to red blood cells. They can stick to proteins. They can stick to fat. And that causes dysfunction in the actual um, activity of those cellular structures. So we don't want glycation. Glycation, you hear about kind of colloquially when you think about the hemoglobin A1C test, that's a test of glycated hemoglobin. So it's looking at how much sugar is stuck to your red blood cells and as a measure of essentially our um, three month average of blood sugar um, because uh, blood cells last for about 120 days or about 90 to 120 days in the bloodstream, about three months, three to four months. And so by looking at how much of these blood cells are glycated, we can get an average of glucose over that time period. And then the other two reasons have more to do with insulin. So when you have a big glucose spike, you're going to have, it's going to tell your pancreas, Hey, you need to release a bunch of insulin because this is the hormone that allows us to actually take glucose up into our cells. And Every time, you know, and it's very normal, you know, you eat something, glucose rises in the bloodstream, release a little insulin, get it into the cells. That allows you to take that glucose into the cell, have your mitochondria process it, turn it into cellular energy that we can use. So that's great. But when this happens over and over with these high spikes, the more glucose you're spiking in your bloodstream, the more insulin you have to release. And when you do that over and over, your your body actually becomes numb to insulin. It's like, oh my gosh, there's so much insulin around. We need to kind of protect ourselves from all of this and your cells can become insulin resistant. And then you still need to get that glucose into the cells for energy. So your pancreas actually produces more insulin. And then you can develop what's called hyperinsulinemia, where just at baseline to get a normal amount of glucose into your cells, you're actually having to produce a lot more of this insulin to drive it in. And that insulin in it, it can cause problems. And so, you know, one, as you become insulin resistant, your body has more trouble actually getting and processing energy. When this happens in specific tissues, that can be really problematic. If your brain, for instance, is insulin resistant and you are having more difficulty getting glucose into your brain cells, you can imagine that cause lots and lots of problems, which is why insulin resistance, even in the brain, is related to depression, anxiety, dementia, fatigue, chronic pain. I mean, this can show up as anything when your cells aren't getting the energy they need. So you don't want insulin resistance and the more you know the more we can do to keep our spikes lower keep insulin exposure lower keep the cells sensitive to insulin the better off we're going to be and then the fifth thing is that when you spike and you release that huge amount of insulin it can cause your glucose to just sort of crash like your body surges out this hormone all this glucose gets sucked up in your cells and then that can cause almost like an overcompensation you you soak up all this glucose and it actually dips lower than it was before your meal and that's called reactive hypoglycemia so big spike reactive hypoglycemia. And that dip after a high glucose spike meal can be associated with some anxiety. It can be associated with um, sort of a post-meal slump or fatigue and and just sort of that, you know, a, a general sort of bad feeling after a meal. So being able to kind of see this and visual, visualize all this on CGM is nice because you can actually link some of those post-meal subjective feelings that I think a lot of people sometimes experience after a big meal and actually see like, oh, this was likely in part because my my glucose spiked and crashed and I had a reactive hypoglycemia dip. When you have the more gentle rolling hills, 
you don't really see that reactive hypoglycemia. You, you, you go up and then you kind of come down right back to baseline. You don't overshoot into the, you know, you're not, you're not getting that overcompensation. So those are kind of five main reasons why you don't want to have a spike. And, you know, when a food is doing this to you, there's a, and this gets back to your question, Lauren, like why is that happening? Well, the easiest answer is carbohydrate concentration in the food. If the food has a bunch of carbohydrates, carbohydrates are broken down into glucose. And so of course you might get a big spike, but that's actually too simple of an answer. Um, because what we know is that two people can eat the exact same amount of carbohydrates and actually have totally different glucose responses. I think we talked about this on the last episode, but like all three of us could eat a cup of oatmeal and like one of us could have five, the exact same carbohydrate content. One of us could go up five you know, milligrams per deciliter of glucose, one of us could go up a hundred points. And that's where things get so interesting and where we start getting into like the complexity of the physiology of digestion and glucose management and whatnot. So the things that we know feed into that, a lot of this comes out of this study that we talked about, which was from the Weissman Institute in Israel, which was uh, personalized nutrition by prediction of glycemic responses that showed, it really looked into like, why would the three of us all respond differently to the exact same carbohydrate meal. And one of the big things they found was that a lot of it had to do with microbiome. Two of the the bacteria that have been closely associated with sort of metabolic effects and is the bacteroides and the firmicutes family. These are just family of bacteria in the microbiome that when they're in sort of the wrong ratios, um, you can see uh, increased propensity to develop metabolic disease and also increased uh, propensity to develop obesity. They've done a lot of really interesting studies in you know, mice to basically show that microbiome is a very deterministic factor in how we process carbohydrates and how that converts into glucose in our bloodstream. The microbiome also produce a lot of really interesting mediators. They produce, so basically the microbiome, you know, they eat fiber and they convert it into other products that then our body uses as molecular information. And some of those are essentially metabolic intermediates. So you, you want your microbiome to be in the right ratios that they're producing these metabolic intermediates that we can then absorb through our colon cells and use to manage our, our metabolism. There's not an easy silver bullet to figure out exactly how to balance out these ratios. Like you don't just take a anti-firmicute probiotic or something like that or pro-bacteroides. But, but really, I always get back to sort of the fundamentals of improving microbiome health, which is really sticking to as much of a whole foods diet as you can, getting a ton of fiber. So I recommend 50 to 75 grams of fiber per day from whole food sources and then avoiding things that are going to hurt the microbiome. So chronic stress hurts the microbiome. They hear all our thoughts and they don't like it when we're stressed focusing on um, avoiding pesticides and sort of toxins in our food that can hurt the microbiome, avoiding super high sugar, back, the bacteria in the gut, you know, they ferment sugar very differently than they ferment other, you know, fibers and things like that. So you don't want to load them with a bunch of processed foods, avoiding too much animal products. So certainly some amount of animal products are probably healthy for the body, but just like excessive amounts of conventionally raised animal products are going to potentially interact with the microbiome in a, in a way that makes sort of toxic byproducts like TMAO, trimethylamine oxide, and then avoiding uh, medications that hurt the microbiome. So antacids and acid-reducing medications, um, NSAIDs like Advil, and then of course, unnecessary antibiotics. And certainly there are times we have to take these medications potentially, but avoiding you know, just totally unnecessary antibiotics ibuprofen, NSAIDs, and you know medications that mess up our, our acid production, or our digestion. Those are all things. So that's kind of the landscape of keeping things you know healthy on the microbiome front. But that's a big deterministic factor in how we convert carbs in our food to glucose in our bloodstream. There's a lot of other things too. One other thing they showed in this study was that just baseline body type and insulin sensitivity, of course, has an impact. What body the food is coming into is going to be really change the way that glucose curve happens. If you're super insulin sensitive and you just need a tiny bit of insulin to soak up glucose, your spike is going to be lower than if you're insulin resistant and that glucose comes in and you're not absorbing it quickly. You know, it's going to look bigger. This is super dynamic process. So if you're just that glucose is entering the bloodstream and immediately being soaked up by cells, that spike is going to look lower. So insulin, baseline insulin sensitivity. And then they talked about anthropomorphic features in the paper. So that is basically comes down to body type and that can be a proxy for insulin sensitivity in some ways. So we know that people with more, um, kind of the quote unquote apple shape, which is like, a the, the tire around the middle, more central adiposity or fat that is often associated with 
insulin resistance. So more visceral adiposity, which is a type of fat that's around organs. We have two types of fat, the fat that's under our skin, subcutaneous fat, and the fat that's actually surrounding our organs or in our organs, which is visceral fat. Visceral fat is associated with insulin resistance. So the more of that you have, which often shows up with fat around the middle can be suggestive of more insulin resistance. So they showed in the paper that, that that sort of thing can, can relate to how your you spike. Now, did the insulin resistance cause the fat to be settled there or vice versa? It's a, you know, that's such a great question. I have to do a plug for this book, Why We Get Sick by Ben Bickman. It just got published two months ago in July. He talks a lot about this, which is the bi-directional relationship between obesity and insulin resistance. So there's evidence in both ways that insulin resistance on its own can cause us to store more visceral fat and the existence of visceral fat can also cause us to become insulin resistant. So there, it's likely that it's bi-directional, but certainly if we are insulin resistant at baseline, we are going to likely, any carb exposure we have in the diet is going to look like a bigger spike because we're just not soaking it up into our cells efficiently and processing it well. So sticking with the insulin resistance, you mentioned you know insulin resistance in the brain, and I've heard, yes, it can lead to dementia and Alzheimer's. Can you be insulin resistant in just specific areas of the body or it's, it's really overall, it's just kind of where you're expressing symptoms? That's a great question. This is, you know, I think the answer is you can be more insulin resistant in certain parts of the body. Certainly where people's insulin resistance shows up as symptoms can be very different amongst different people. And so, mm-hmm. so that suggests that there's different levels of insulin resistance in different parts of the body. However, we do have to also remember that we are one unified system. We do have to think of ourselves as this sort of holistic body where where a systemic process like insulin resistance or inflammation, it, it's happening everywhere, but, but certainly it's showing up differently in different people. And so for one person, insulin resistance might look like obesity and that's it. For another person, it could look like depression, fibromyalgia, polycystic ovarian syndrome, and brain fog. And for another person, it could look like fatty liver disease, the kidneys are kind of going a little, you know, the kidney numbers are off and erectile dysfunction. It is so, you know, and for another person, it could be nothing until they have their first heart attack. And then all of a sudden they get diagnosed with, oh, you had high blood sugar and insulin resistance and endothelial dysfunction. It can look so different, but fundamentally a lot of that is linked by this increased risk factor of cells being insulin resistance and chronic exposure to, to high glucose. So um, it has so many faces, which is fascinating. And they can look very different between different people, which is, I think, part of why it's been confusing to track how much metabolic dysfunction has an impact on so many health things. So, right. And yes. even, in, even in twins, you can see variation, right? Absolutely. So some, you know, two people that are genetically very similar, that's amazing. I can see why it's so complicated. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I've gone as long answer to your question, which is basically like microbiome baseline insulin sensitivity, and then all these other mitigating factors that we talked a lot about on the last episode, like sleep quality, how much exercise you're doing and how you're managing stress. Those three other things I think are big factors that impact how you're going to respond to a specific carb in your bloodstream in terms of glucose having less sleep, you will see likely higher glucose spikes after the exact same meal that didn't spike you on a day when you got sleep. If you're very, very stressed, the same meal can cause a higher glucose response, likely because of the way cortisol is impacting our glucose. And if you haven't exercised or have exercised, it's going to change the way your muscles are picking up glucose. And so that's that can change your spike. So those three things are big. And just the last one I'll mention is sort of micronutrient status. So people, it takes micronutrients like things like manganese, magnesium, zinc, um, vitamin C, um, a lot of the B vitamins for our, our mitochondria and our cell membrane receptors to actually function properly. So baseline micronutrient status can have a really big impact on how two different people will respond to the same carbohydrate source. So, so yeah, so you know, microbiome, insulin sensitivity, micronutrients, sleep, stress, exercise, and then of course, you know, carb content. And then a lot of the things we talked about last time, like carb content, how you're pairing the foods, when you're eating the foods, what time of day, those would be the main things that create differences. So it's a lot to think about, 
But I think when you're tracking your glucose regularly and you're learning about all this stuff, a lot of it becomes intuitive after a while. You just notice like, oh, if I eat oatmeal earlier in the day versus at night, it's a lower spike. Like there must be something to that. So a lot of it ends up becoming intuitive, but there is a lot to, to think about with this stuff. So those yeah, are the main factors, that's really where the, that's where the CGM is just priceless to be able to yeah. do that on your own. So I'm curious, I mean, you keep talking about carbohydrates. I've heard about the carb test where you would just test like one cup of brown rice with nothing on it, one cup of oatmeal with nothing on it. Like every day you do a different carb. My question is, is it really important to test those foods if you're never going to eat them that way? Like I would never eat brown rice with nothing on it. Like I'm going to put some like, as well. I'm never going to do that because it's yeah, I'm gonna put, it doesn't work for me. <laughs> right. I'm going to put some butter, olive oil, some vegetables in there with fiber. So yeah. What's the answer to that? <laughs> I think where carb calibration tests like that can be helpful is starting to experiment with the differential effect of these things in our toolbox. So actually testing the food and then testing it under different conditions. So if you can get a baseline, like yeah, brown rice causes me to go to a glucose of 170 milligrams per deciliter. But then you can potentially repeat that experiment under different conditions. You can start to parse out how those other mitigating factors are impacting your carb responsiveness. So Mm. how I might structure it is eat something. For me, a sweet potato spikes me through the roof. It was so disappointing when I did this (laughs) calibration. I basically did one full cup of completely plain sweet potato, which I would sometimes potentially eat a sweet potato on its own, but it put me up to 170, which was like, like, I think one of my highest spikes ever. But then you can take that knowledge and start doing the other variables. So, oh, I got an extra two hours of sleep on the weekend. What if I eat that again? Oh, I did a high intensity interval training Peloton workout one day. What if I then ate the sweet potato after that? Oh, I'm you know giving a talk in front of 500 people. What if I ate the sweet potato right around then? Like, or, oh, I've been taking my vitamins for a month and then I do the sweet potato and sort of start seeing, like doing this as an experiment of like, how are each of these things impacting my response and create what I would consider your sort of toolbox for what are your, what are your most effective go-to tools to blunt a spike? And then of course, like you said, adding butter, I mean, adding fat, adding protein, adding cinnamon, adding vinegar, trying it with berberine, all these different things that we know of an impact on spikes. Um, you can start to experiment with that stuff. Gosh, the variables are endless. Now I'm understanding why you are keeping your CGM on indefinitely. (laughs) The experiment just goes on and on and on. Do you still learn? Do you still learn new things every day with how long you've had your CGM? I, I still do. You know, some of the experiments are, have been longer term experiments. Like I more recently kind of made a commitment that I was just going to be even more zealous about sleep. And I was basically not going to let anything get in the way. I can always make excuses for, you know, going to bed late or staying up a little late. And that's one thing I I do kind of struggle with, but I was like, you know what, for two weeks, I am going to, there's nothing that is going to stop me from getting at least seven and a half hours of time asleep on my Fitbit. And so I even would like sleep in a little bit later to make sure I got that. And I noticed a huge impact on my glucose. Like it was a, it was marked. And so it made me realize that that consistency is so important. So I think doing some of the longer, longer timeline experiments are fun when you've had it for a long time. But I do think there's kind of two phases to using CGM. There is like the rapid insight part of things, which is like the first few months where I think you're just learning so much and you're really testing a lot of these variables. And then I think there's then phase two, which is really using it more to stay accountable and to just keep yourself on track. And that's more the phase I'm in now, which is I don't want to see a spike. I don't want to go into the red. And so having it there is just this little angel on my shoulder saying, don't do it, not worth it. And and that I think is going to be valuable forever. I mean, I have no intention of ever taking this off, just like I don't take off my Fitbit. I'm overwhelmed by all this information in a positive way. But for people that are listening, you mentioned all of those the mechanisms for why we could have these negative reactions. Is there a way to prioritize that list? Like if we're talking about inflammation, oxidative stress, glycation, is A1C enough of a predictive marker or do you just encourage using the CGM over time? Do you start there? Do you start with like a GI map and do a gut panel? Mm. There's so many things to look at, which is actually... (laughs) causing a little bit of stress right now. (laughs) Mm. How do we guide people to get started if 
they are at that far end of the spectrum where inflammation really is a problem where insulin really is a problem. Yeah. I mean, I think the really nice thing is that this can get so ultra nuanced down. Yeah. Like we can start talking about firm acutes and that, but that becomes like, wow, this is getting really difficult to feel actionable. But the beauty is, is that I think, you know, the biggest driver is food. Food is, I like to say food is necessary, but not sufficient for medic- metabolic health. You need to be eating properly, you know, and for your body and in a personalized way to have optimal metabolic health, but it isn't, it, you also need a lot of these other things in harmony to, to really achieve perfect physiologic function. You, you also need the sleep. You also need the stress management. You also need the exercise. You need all these things to work in concert, but sleep, but food is the key driver. So if someone just wanted to start and basically get the lowest hanging fruit, get as many wins in the beginning, I would just say, put a CGM on and start and stop eating the things that are spiking you to the roof. That's the easiest thing you can do. If you see that oatmeal and Oreos and your morning mocha and these things are taking you to 180, that is such easy information to just like pull them out for a little bit and start seeing how you feel. On the flip side, you're going to start to see a lot of foods that you love that aren't spiking your glucose. And you can start to emphasize those more in the diet. Over time, as you just take away the low hanging fruit things that are just totally zapping your, you know, giving you these hyperglycemic spikes and zapping your metabolic health. What's going to happen is that as you have less and less of those spikes, just by avoiding these obvious foods, you're going to likely regain some insulin sensitivity. You're going to start moving down the path of just being more sensitive and things are going to start shifting. So, you know, that in terms of our, the product that I've built at levels, which is the software that helps make this a lot easier for people we have developed what's called the zone score, which is essentially just an an easy number, one through 10, was this a good or bad meal for you? And so I tell people like in the beginning, just find out what's causing your ones, twos, and threes, which are a very, you know, pronounced metabolic response and see the ones that are seven, eights, and nines, which are a very minimal metabolic response and just start eating more of the seven, eights, and nines and not the ones, twos, and threes. And that's like the first step. All this other stuff is like, definitely icing on the cake, but it doesn't have to get to that, you know, exponential level of complexity to start seeing some, some wins. And then after that first, really just like the obvious food stuff, like get rid of the the killers, you know, like the mocha or whatever it is that's spiking you then start making some of those little nuanced tweaks that we educate about in the product and in our educational resources, which is like, yeah, if you're spiking on a food that you love, that seems actually kind of healthy, like quinoa or whatever, add fat, add protein, add a vinegar dressing. These are things that all, you know, vinegar is an insulin sensitizer, fat and protein, you know, tend to blunt glucose spikes. So start now adding some of these evidence-based ways to like blunt your spike, get those zone scores up even more, you know, and then after that, start bringing in some really easy lifestyle stuff. So like take a walk for 20 minutes after meals. You know, if you're really stressed during a meeting and your glucose is going up, take five deep diaphragmatic breaths. If you can, try and bump up your sleep from six and a half to seven hours, like simple stuff. But, but first step is just remove the, the crazy spikers from your diet. I think. Yeah, that's really helpful. I think that also really speaks to the benefit over something like a finger prick glucose. I love the idea of the zone scores and just making that visual, just really powerful. It's like takes all the guesswork out. Really awesome. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Funny story real quick about the walking the study that you shared with us last time where you said like just walking two minutes, I think it was every 30 minutes. Yeah. Um, I was telling uh, one of my clients who's a high schooler about that. I was like, he's not really ready to exercise yet. We're just starting with the basics. So I told him about this walking thing. And he said that now that they're back in school with COVID, that they have to walk outside around the whole school building to get to their classes. But it's a one-way walkway. So if your class is here and your next class is just right next door to the left, you actually have to go outside, walk all the way around. And so he was like, I'm going to be walking miles every day at school. I was like, this wow. is a great thing. That's, <laughs> That's brilliant. We should Who keep knew? this. Yeah. yeah. One way walking. <laughs> what a silver lining for metabolic yeah. health. <laughs> so I'm excited to see how he's doing in a couple of weeks. Yeah. If only in my house, you know, to get to the bathroom, I had to exit the house, walk around just to get, you know, it'd be, it'd yeah, be great. Go up get the a bunch stairs, of- <laughs> down the stairs. Yeah. 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 How complicated can we make this? <laughs> <laughs> New business idea. Yeah. Mazes inside your house. 
<laughs> yes, just walk more. Sorry, I had to add that. I love that. I love that. It'll be interesting to see if he notices, you know, if it makes him feel better, you know, to be walking yeah. a bunch during the day. So yeah, much different yeah. than the last six months where a lot of people have been sitting on their couch more more yes. than they're used to. So, so yeah, I'm excited sitting. to see. Yeah, I notice a huge difference just personally with walking, especially after meals. The the drop that happens is so powerful. So such an That's easy great. tool. Uh, so Dr. Casey, I really want to talk about the plant-based diet. You follow a plant-based diet. And I'm just curious because you mentioned the carbohydrate concentration being a factor, but we know it goes a little bit deeper with microbiome and just the status of like your personal gut health. Can you explain, you talked about getting 50 to 75 grams of fiber and then also not like avoiding things that hurt your microbiome. What about the people that have some kind of gut distress, leaky gut that need to avoid things like fermentable carbohydrates or someone that's following more of a carnivore type diet that can't get fiber for health reasons? Where do we start with that? That's a great question. And that's where things get really complex and where I think working with an amazing, you know, functional medicine doctor, integrative health physician, gut focused physician, coach, or naturopathic medicine physician. That's like where I think bringing in someone like that to really help optimize gut health is sometimes really necessary. You know, gut health is a really, really tough thing. And you get into a catch 22 situation sometimes where if there's underlying gut dysfunction, like leaky gut or SIBO or something like that, it can preclude people from eating the foods that ultimately are going to be, you know, potentially very healing and provide lots of micronutrients mm-hmm. and lots of nutrients we need for cellular function because your body's not really able to process them effectively. And this is, these are some of the cha- most challenging cases, you know, I see in my practice. And I like to think of it very much in like a, a, a tiered sort of stepwise function to get to the place where you can process vegetables and, you know, fibers and things like that effectively. It, it often doesn't start with just throwing all those things into the gut and kind of seeing what happens. Because if there is leaky gut and there is SIBO, that can just exacerbate symptoms. So usually it starts with identifying what the causes and what the triggers of those conditions are, what is underlying potentially the SIBO, you know, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Is it hypothyroidism? Is it, you know, is it, is it a, is it a bacterial, is it, is it IBS and some sort of like GI parasite or something that's causing some issue that's leading to this? Get to the root of what's causing those GI issues, treat the root cause of those things. And then the next step would be building a healthier gut. So that might mean, you know, and that's a that's a complex question as well, but that's gut lining integrity. So you're making sure you're getting the nutrients that are required to build a healthy colon wall, um, building up the microbiome through potentially probiotics or probiotic foods, you know, sealing up the leaky gut or whatnot. And then after that, it might be introduction of a lot of these foods that can be potentially inflammatory in the wrong context. So I don't, so it doesn't often involve just like starting with a bunch of, you know, super high fiber foods, but I, I like to get everyone worked up so that we can actually get there. But that can take, that can take months um, and often involves treating the underlying root causes of gut conditions first. And that's where having, I think, a really seasoned practitioner can be helpful in that, in that journey. Yeah, so, so complex. So ideally we're getting back to a healthy gut that can tolerate this fiber because that's really helpful for our glucose response, right? Exactly. I want to briefly interrupt this episode to share with you information about dirty genes. Yes, most of us have them due to genetic abnormalities called SNPs. This is one of the most important pieces of the genetic puzzle, and some can make a huge difference not only with our health, but also our personality. One of the most prominent or well-known SNPs is the MTHFR gene that Renee and I and most of our family carry. MTHFR initiates our ability to methylate, a key mechanism that dictates our stress and immune response, inflammation, energy production, detoxification, cell repair, antioxidant function, and functional brain chemistry. MTHFR can create a host of health problems from irritability and obsessiveness to autoimmunity, cardiovascular conditions, and cancer. It is incredibly important that this gene functions properly. But we have some exciting news. Your genes are being rewritten every single day, and they want our input. We actually have the agency to change our health outcomes by choosing optimal nutrition, reduced exposure to environmental toxins and stress, and with clean supplementation. So I love this part about it. You can actually determine your genetic needs through many different tests, such as 23andMe, DNA Fit, Inside Tracker, 
or found my fitness. And from there, you have the information and the power to make the most of the genes that we inherited, which leads me to Seeking Health. Renee and I are both huge fans of the company Seeking Health, which was founded by Dr. Ben Lynch, an expert in nutrigenomics and methylation. This company specializes in products and nutrients to support these particular gene abnormalities so you can enjoy your greatest health potential. Some of our favorite products include Active B12 with L-methylfolate, PQQ, and liver nutrients, which support our unique genetic and nutritional needs. We're so thrilled to be able to share with you a 10% discount on these products and all others at Seeking Health. So head over to their website, www.seekinghealth.com, to take advantage of this one-time discount using the code BIOHACKERBABES. As always, we really hope to empower you to be your own biohacker, and in this case, take control of your genetic health. Once again, the site is seekinghealth.com, and the code is biohackerbabes for 10% off. So I guess on a more personal level, for me, I've always stayed away from purely plant-based because my glucose tends to spike, and I do pretty well with a little bit more protein and fat. How... I guess I need to play around with the, the variables, but would increasing the fiber, not necessarily just strictly carbohydrates help with that? Yeah, I think that's a big factor. So we like large epidemiologic studies show that people who eat higher fiber diets tend to have less metabolic disease. So the more fiber people eat, the less likely they are to develop, you know, diabetes and other metabolic conditions, which can feel counterintuitive because they're kind of in the carb family. But these are um, not necessarily, uh, carbs that are going to show up as a glucose spike because they're eaten by the microbiome first and they're being turned into actually really helpful chemical compounds, things like short chain fatty acids and butyrate and these anti-inflammatory pro-metabolic health substances. So, so I don't tend to think of fiber. These are not really accessible as glucose in my, in my bloodstream. So I'm, I'm mostly thinking in the terms of net carbs. So a carbohydrate concentration minus the fiber, which is why something like beans, you know, even though they have a high carbo con- carbohydrate concentration, their net carbs are, are, can be fairly low. And then when you pair them with a bunch of other metabolically friendly things like fat, you know, they have a lot of protein in them, but I'll often add protein. And then, you know, adding something like a vinaigrette or something that has an insulin synthesizer, that's a way to just like further blunt the spike. So I do think it is a lot about thinking about fiber as you eat carbs and think you have to think of those two things, I think in conjunction and, and then what are they being paired with, you know, and then what is the other context with which you're eating these foods in terms of sleep, stress, exercise, et cetera. Yeah. It's these days it's almost, this might sound extreme, but I feel like it's almost unfathomable to me to think of just eating a straight carb source, you know, that doesn't have a fairly significant composition of fiber, protein, and fat, because I just know it's gonna spike me. And that involves fruit. Yeah. I mean, for me these, these days, and I'm certainly not recommending this for everyone, but I've been experimenting with CGM for a year. So I know what keeps my glucose flat. I'm now down to eating pretty specific fruits. And I, I reflexively reach in my cabinet for the fruit and then the nut butter or the tahini or whatever and the chia seeds. Like it's just mm-hmm. now it is second nature for me to do that because I know that I can get a 10 zone score and have a glucose change of like four or five with an entire apple, an entire pear, if I if I put that those extra things on it. So for me, it's just reflexive at this point. So that's just from a lot of experimentation that's based in the literature that shows that that you know, these things, other macros can impact our response to the carbs. So, um, yeah, I'm the same way. I have to stay away from just like a, a a fruit alone, but it's interesting. Like I could add almond butter, but then it becomes like, am I just adding this just so I can get away with eating the apple? Maybe I just shouldn't eat that at all. Maybe I should go towards something green or a protein. So I guess it depends on what nutrients you're trying to get out of that food. Correct. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, Everything I, I, the way I look at food is that, and is food is molecular information. That's, that's what food is. And so I'm just trying to get a certain amount of molecular information per day. And some of the key things on my molecular information checklist are all things that I know are going to help with physiologic function. So that's going to be fiber. So I can make short chain fatty acids. It's going to be omega threes, which, you know, are anti-inflammatory mediators, but also building blocks of healthy cell membranes. It's going to be as much antioxidants as I can possibly get because antioxidants are going to buffer, you know, free radicals, minimize inflammation, help with, you know, DNA repair and things like that. 
it's going to be protein, you know, for obviously, you know, anabolic processes in the body, it's going to be, you know, and then micronutrients. I'm thinking about micronutrients all the time as molecular information. So getting the widest range of, you know, B vitamins, vitamin C, A, E, coenzyme Q10, all, you know, all the B vitamins, not just B12, manganese, magnesium, zinc, all these things, chromium, biotin, you know. So that's like on my mental checklist. And then I'm looking at the foods around me and I'm like, well, where, where can I get this stuff without having collateral damage, like a glucose spike? And for fruit, you know, fruit is an amazing source of some of that molecular information. It's going to have a lot of the vitamins and minerals. It's also going to have a lot of antioxidants. So I'm choosing fruits that are going to maximize those things. Fruits have a very wide differential in terms of antioxidant composition with things like, you know, organic, berries, blackberries, blueberries, goji berries, things like that, having super high antioxidant composition. And then some other fruits not having that much. And so I'm, I want that stuff and I, and fruit may be the thing I turn to, to get that. But obviously as I'm doing that, I'm, you know, want to, want to make sure I'm minimizing the spike. So I'm going to say, okay, well, what can I add that gets me other things on my checklist? Like tahini, which has sesamoid compounds, which is an antioxidant. It's got fiber. It's got it's yeah, teeny has fiber, it's got fat, it's got protein. So it's kind of just mixing and matching all this stuff. But so each food in my mind has a utility, it has a purpose. And it's really just all day thinking about how am I getting all of these things that are necessary for, for cellular function and avoiding things that are essentially either empty of those things or potentially detrimental. So for instance, like a refined vegetable oil, not only has none of those things that I mentioned, but it has going to have really high concentration of omega-6 fats in this form that are highly oxidizable. So it doesn't fit anything on the molecular information checklist. So it's out. I'm not going to eat it. Yeah. That's kind of the framework through which I, I, I look at food, which, which lets me eat fruit here and there because it's, it's got those things, but certainly has to be balanced by getting enough of the other foods that fill the other cat, you know, the other things on the list for me. So, yeah, it's kind of like a chemistry experiment, like <laughs> where can I get these different things. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. I love what also you said. Just, so sorry, go ahead. Bye. <laughs> also just fulfilling the, what we need out of food. I think so many people are just operating under the like satiety principle. It's like, what can I mm-hmm. eat to fill me up or what can I eat to make me feel better or make me happy? rather than looking at food as nutrients, which is really this whole purpose, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Food is nutrients. And then, you know, and as what I, I love about food that makes it so magical to me is that it is both the information. It, it is both the, the thing that tells our bodies what to do. It's like the instruction manual for ourselves, but it's also the building blocks. It's like two different functions. So that's kind of amazing. It's like being the builder, you know, and the architect or like the bricks and the builder, you know, at the same time. And so, and we only get so many calories per day, right? Like we only can eat a certain amount per day. And if you think that it's both making up your body and also telling your body what to do, it is, these are telling your genes how to be expressed, telling your cell membranes how to function. It's like, it becomes, it feels imperative to make those choices wisely because that's all we've got. We've got those calories. And if you start wasting those calories with things that are either not adding value or are adding anti-value, you can imagine how quickly the body's going to break down. And unfortunately, the foods we have access to today add either negative value, a lot of them, the processed, you know, highly refined manufactured Franken foods, they either add negative value or they don't add positive value. And so when you start filling a lot of your calories per day with that stuff, you can see how the body will fall apart. So, you know, I think it's, I love having conversations like this and helping maybe people think about food as this really empowering tool um, to both build ourselves and tell our bodies what to do. And, you know, going to each meal, think, what can I get out of this to like, help me express the highest version of myself? Um, Yeah. Yeah. I just got an overwhelming sadness <laughs> right now because I've been in like a lot of gas station stores recently because I've been in the car a lot and just I mean this is nothing new but you walk in there and you're like there's no real food in here but to think that that is normal for a lot of people just to go in there and it's like you're hungry what can I buy purchase eat so that I'm not hungry anymore it's just like a completely different mindset totally it's really sad. yeah yeah and I like what you said about the anti-value Right. Cause I think people don't really think about like what you're depleting from your body, like eating that sugar, right. You're not getting any nutrients, but then you're depleting your B vitamins and your magnesium and your chromium and whatever that you're probably paying a fortune to supplement with a multivitamin, right. People don't yeah. think like save that money and maybe just skip the stuff that's pulling it out of your body. Mm. 
Yeah. Really different way to look at it. And I love what you said too, about just nutrition being this information. You know, when people ask me, why did I go back to school to study nutrition? I'm like, cause it's the one thing that everyone is putting into their body every day. I mean, unless they're fasting, of course, but <laughs> right. It's this information that everyone needs to be thinking about every day of their lives. Yeah. It's really incredible yeah. when you think about it that way. It is. It is. And, you know, I think we, we were talking about like, what are the small ones you can do with glucose, like the easy low hanging fruit stuff. And I think that that's kind of the same for bigger picture nutrition too. Like there's, there's a lot of intense complexities to it, but there's also just a lot of really simple principles that we can do. Like, you know, don't spike your glucose, get omega threes, get antioxidants and eat whole foods, get fiber. Like there are some basic principles and then, you know, you can make it, it's a lot, it can get a lot more complex too. And that's where I think we don't have, you know, great, great answers for how we're going to scale getting some of like the more nuanced information about nutrition, like out, you know, to people. And, and one thing that I think about like being plant, we were talking about plant-based stuff is like, a lot of people ask me like, well, what about omega-3s, you're getting plant-based omega-3s, which are like upstream, they're alpha linoleic acid, but that's not actually the omega-3s that you need to like have the anti-inflammatory effects that are going to your cell membranes, which is downstream of those, which is EPA and DHA, um, which come from fish and mostly, and also algae. And what's interesting about like, so basically to get EPA and DHA from a plant-based diet of, from alpha linoleic acid, which you're getting from plants like chia seeds and flax and walnuts, it has to go through like a four and five step conversion to get to those things. And has to be like molecularly converted by enzymes into like all these other things like steridonic acid and all this stuff before you can even get to EPA and DHA. And to do each of those enzymatic reactions through these enzymes, like elongase and delta-60 saturates and delta-5 desaturates, these conversions, it actually requires five to 10 micronutrients for each of those enzymes to work. So like Delta-60 saturase alone requires B2, B3, B6, vitamin C, zinc, and magnesium. And you can imagine, okay, yeah, someone eating a plant-based diet who's not thinking about the conversion and the micronutrients required to get to EPA and DHA, sure, they could have a huge problem with EPA and DHA and end up having a lot of biologic dysfunction if they're not thinking about that whole pathway. And, and how do you even know how much of those micronutrients to have? But you, you do have to. So I'm thinking every day, I know I need to do this conversion. And so I need to get all of those cofactors for those enzymes. But we have not figured out a way, I think, in healthcare to scale that type of detailed information that people need to require, which is, and this is why I think a lot of people on a plant-based diet or a vegan diet run into a lot of problems is because we are just not thinking at the level of detail that it takes to achieve optimal biochemical function. I, it's not that hard, but it is detailed. And um, the average doctor obviously is absolutely not going to be talking about these things with a patient. And so this is a, it's a yeah. I don't have an answer, but I think it's an interesting challenge. And I, this is where I think digital health could be really interesting, coaching and digital health, because we can start to help people inform these nuanced decisions, you know, at home every day, but it, we're not there yet, unfortunately. Yeah. So, but hopefully heading that way. Yeah. Actually someone the other day just asked me what's wrong with a plant-based diet. And I said, well, there's, there's nothing wrong with it. It, it can be great if you do it right. Mm-hmm. And like you said, just so many people are doing it wrong because mm-hmm. they don't have the information. And, and the other thing about the omega. So I actually have a genetic SNP where I do not make that conversion well from the ALA mm. to the EPA DHA. So I supplement with fish oil. And then I eat fish occasionally, not a lot. So do you ever supplement with like algae or fish oil? Or are you really just focus on that conversion? Oh, for sure. Yeah. I check my omega-3 and omega-6 levels, you know, every six months or so. And there's a Amazing. lot of times when I have to supplement and I, I use fish oil, I'll use algae, but yeah, certainly if I'm really staying on my game with my, you know, cofactors and making sure, you know, I'm eating foods that I know maximize those things. I, I see better levels, better conversion, but I'm, I'm very open to, you know, supplementing in a really thoughtful, targeted way to help, to help with these things. Cause it's, it's so important to have those EPA and DH level A levels be really on point, but it comes down again, as always to daily choices. Like I am, you know, in my fridge, I've got like 15 mason jars of nuts and seeds because I'm eating those all the time. If I know my magnesium is low for certain and I or I need functionally more magnesium for certain processes based on what my lab testing is showing, like I should choose the pumpkin seeds over the Brazil nuts that 
you know, but that, if I do that just once, it's not going to do anything. I have to do that like regularly for weeks to build up my magnesium sources. So it's really like looking at food as this is a toolbox of molecular information. I have to actually make the choice and do it and then do it regularly for weeks to see an effect. I mean, that's, that's kind of required, but I'm looking at each sort of thing in my fridge is like, okay, my Brazil nuts, obviously that's a selenium source. My pumpkin seeds, that's a magnesium source. You know, my, they're just, each thing has sort of a different value add, but just doing it one off, like, isn't going to help. So this is where it does, it does get complex and, and where in that framework, it's easy to actually stay, I think really on target with a healthy diet. Cause you realize like, if you just start eating some crap that has like nothing of value in it, you're never going to get, I think the amount of micronutrients and macronutrients you need to have like a really optimally functioning body. It has to kind of be every bite serves a purpose. And some might say that gets a little obsessive about, but I, I I really, I don't feel to me, it feels very second nature and and empowered at this point, you know, that this is, this is a way we can serve our body and serve our purpose and serve those people around us. Because as we invest in ourselves through good choices about our food, we're actually building a body that can, that can serve others, um, both mentally and physically. So you're really looking at food as medicine. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. So Casey, you have such a wealth of information about your own micronutrient status, and you also have access to, I guess, regular lab testing, which could be expensive for some people. What would you say to the person that's jumping on this plant-based bandwagon to save the planet or to, I guess, upgrade their health when they're not aware of this status, their own health, metabolic health status, micronutrient status? Would you recommend them go in that direction without having that information and access to the lab? I know it's so complex and it's so different for every person. And Renee and I are more in the the camp of supporting sustainable agriculture and getting those nutrients from animal products. But we we also you know have access to the labs or keeping an eye on our nutrition. But for the people that don't have access to that or barely gotten their feet wet, what would you recommend? It's a great question. I, I think that to do a plant-based diet in our current food culture well, like I think you need to go into it really thoughtfully. And I will say that there are a few lab tests that people should definitely be getting every year because you can get into a very big problem. So I think B vitamins, especially B12 is important. And I do think testing omega-3s is also important, although that's one where I think supplementing empirically is probably okay, like just taking a supplement. But you don't, you can get yourself into a very uh, omega-3 problem and a B12 problem if you're not thinking about those things actively on a, on a vegan diet. So I think it's, it's important to, to track it. You know, someone, there's so many different faces of a, of a vegan diet. You could be basically eating like pasta and pop tarts all day, every day. I don't even know if pop tarts are vegan, but like, you know, you, you could eat all my package. college roommate. She <laughs> ate ramen noodles and gummy bears. That yeah. Was her and she diet. was vegan. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that's going to lead to poor health rapidly. So, you know, there's no, there's no two ways around it. You can't overcompensate for that amount of deficiency in terms of key things we need for biologic function. So, you know, I, I would recommend at a minimum, like reading some of the key thought leaders in sort of like the plant-based space and reading five to 10 books before going on a vegan diet so that you can like really understand the ins and outs of what's important. So I'm just like looking at my bookshelf over here, like I would certainly read Michael Greger's How to Not Die or How to Not Diet. I would read Caldwell Estelstein's book. He is the the vegan doctor who writes a lot about heart disease. I'd probably read Joel Furman's Garth Davis, Proteinaholic. Um, there's just a lot of great plant-based authors out there who've taken a really nuanced approach to these things. Yeah, I'd say in the, in the plant-based space, yeah, Caldwell Estelstein, Michael Greger, Garth Davis, um, Cyrus Cambada. Those are some of my, some of my faves. So yeah. So really educate yourself. Absolutely. We'll put those in the show notes. We'll share those resources. Yeah. So all this talk of like plant-based and vegan, I have to go the other extreme and just get your opinion. The carnivore diet is really gaining popularity right now. Seems like people are having great benefits short term, but there's no long-term research obviously at this point. Do you have any thoughts on what we're going to see in five to 10 years with people doing this kind of diet? It's really hard to know. You know, it's a very, um, yeah, I mean, it's extreme. And I, you know, there, I, I listen to a lot of this 
thought leaders in this space, you know, Paul Saladino. And I think it's fascinating. And I'm one thing I really appreciate about, I think the people who are in this space is that they are very fixated on metabolic health. They are very aware of how metabolic health is. We are very aligned on that. And they're reading the literature really, really critically and, and taking a slightly different interpretation. And I think that's, that's all fine. I mean, this is really important for us to be having this type of discourse. The other thing that I really appreciate about the carnivore community is that a big focus on sustainable agriculture and how there's almost no disagreement that the way we're raising animals and sourcing animal products these days is like hugely problematic for human health and the planet. And that if we're going to move in a direction of eating a lot of meat, like it needs to be raised sustainably in a way that is good for the earth, good for humans. And it also comes down to this, the same concept of like food as molecular information. I think someone like Paul Saladino is looking at food as molecular information and actually really thinking deeply about like what is what is in the meat and how is that serving the body. And if you take a cow that was raised in like a factory farm and a cow that was raised free range, you know, in a stress-free environment on a beautiful farm in California, the molecular information of those two different cows is vastly different, totally different chemical compounds in those two animals. And so I'm super, yeah, I'm super impressed by, I think a lot of the there's a lot of actual alignment between some of the things that I think these different groups are talking about, but just the mm-hmm. mechanisms are different. And but the micronutrients gonna... that you talked about, I know like Paul Saladino is really looking at, well, what micronutrients am I getting when I eat nose to tail? Like they're not just eating the muscle, right? Right. They're looking at, like you said, micronutrients. So exactly. Like there's certain animals who can, you know, humans don't have the ability to make vitamin C. And so like, that's one argument for why we need to eat plants is because we need to get we need to get exogenous vitamin C sources, but certain animals can actually store some vitamin C in their livers. And so if you are eating nose to tail, there is the idea that you could actually generate, you could actually get some of these things that we can't make exogenously. And when you think about something like carnivore diet, very low in fiber, of course, many of these thought leaders have addressed that question of like, well, what about the microbiome? But if you get into deep ketosis by being on a carnivore diet, theoretically, you are making your own butyrate, which is also a byproduct that um, the microbiome makes when you eat fiber. So I think really it comes down to, there's a lot of really interesting redundant pathways in the body that you can kind of make things through, through different ways. You can eat them and have your body make them or your microbiome make them, or you can get into a really interesting different metabolic state and actually generate them a different way. Some like butyrate is kind of the perfect example of that. So I think time will kind of tell how things proceed with this. But I, I, I do really believe in redundant pathways in the body and that there's a lot of different ways to kind of make or produce the same things. Um, so yeah, I think time, time, time will kind of tell um, on this, yeah. but... That was a great answer. Yeah. Oh, it's so incredible. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for that. So is it possible to wrap all of that up? Like there's so much complexity and so much we don't know. I guess I'm assuming that you would say in the meantime, we need to just focus on ourselves, right? (laughs) Use the CGM to see how our personal health is being affected and try to do small experiments within reason. I think that's right on the money. Yeah, I really do think it comes down to that. I I do think there are foundational principles that we can all align on, like Paul and I, which is like, you don't want glucose spikes, you know? And I don't get any glucose spikes on me, but my vegan diet, he doesn't get glucose spikes on his carnivore diet. So that's great for both of us. So certain things like that, that are key, like we do not want excessive glucose spikes in our body. We have zero need for a single gram of refined sugar in our diet. No one needs it. We weren't evolved to eat it. We don't need it. We don't need a single gram per year of refined sugar. So we can avoid that. We do not want to be eating readily oxidized foods. We do not want to be eating oxidized um, refined oils. And so when you start getting into some of these things of like, we don't want glucose spikes, we don't really need to eat refined sugar, there's no positive benefits to the body, and we don't want to eat oxidized foods, which I I think most people can agree on those three things, but maybe I'm wrong. Mm -hmm. I'm sure sure there's people (laughs) who can disagree, but I know that Paul and I agree on those things, and I'm a vegan and he's a carnivore. That automatically takes you into essentially the whole foods world of like eating whole foods. You know, I think we also can agree that like, we don't want to cill our environment, you know, and like these monocropped pesticide riddled foods are not good for our environment. And so, so now we get into a realm of whole foods unprocessed that are hopefully sort of more local and organic and aren't covered in Roundup. And so right there, you've moved into the direction of uh, essentially moving into a a very whole food, sustainable 
diet, whether that includes vegetables or meat, that is, you know, going to be variable, but that right there would take away. I think if people ate that way would take away a lot of the suffering on our, our planet. Yes. It comes down to like biohacking and tracking, but even if we just take like core principles about what we do and don't need for human health and actually adhere to those, we'd move to a place where people could achieve a lot of health improvements just by, by doing those simple things. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Dr. Yeah, Casey, incredible. You know. <laughs> I'm like so satisfied. Thank you so yes. much. <laughs> Blown me away. And I'm sure all of our listeners, again, I want to be respectful of your time. So I'll let you get on with your day. But before you run, can you share with everyone if they are interested in getting a CGM, the possibility of that? Yes, absolutely. So we are going to have a code for you guys that you actually, your listeners can um, use this code to come to the Levels website and sign up for our program. If you actually didn't listen to the first episode where we talked a lot about Levels, I can just explain it briefly. This is the company that I am a co-founder of. And this is a company that essentially gives people access to continuous glucose monitors as a health optimization tool. Our program is a month. We pair you up with a telemedicine physician who will evaluate you for a prescription for a continuous glucose monitor. If they approve that prescription, um, we will ship you two continuous glucose monitors, each of which you wear for 14 days. So together, these two will set you up for a month of continuous glucose monitoring and then access to the Levels app, like we've been talking about in the program, that basically makes a lot of this, this glucose data stream highly actionable lets you know sort of what is causing a big metabolic response, what isn't, and lets you start to um, you know adjust your diet and lifestyle based on that. So this month-long levels program, you can sign up for with uh, this code and and uh, skip the skip the wait list, which currently is thirty thousand people. So get ahead of the line, and uh, we we're happy to yeah to do that for the Biohacker Babes listeners. Thank, Thank you, you so much. much. That's so incredible. We're so for excited. Sure. We had such an overwhelming response. So I think our audience is going to be so thrilled. Dr. Casey, again, so many amazing resources. So we're going to put all of that in the show notes. We are so, so happy that you came back to share so much information with us. And I still have more questions, but uh, we will be respectful of your time. So I'll just say thank you again. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. And thanks to everyone for tuning in. Love this episode of the Biohacker Babes podcast? Head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. We truly appreciate your support. Until then, happy biohacking.